Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, who had his name and his father's names written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, with, a loud, with like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made, his, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which, makes all, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them, and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or in their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keeps his commands and remains faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of a man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then, a, then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap before the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather, a and gather um, the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine before its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Thanks, Will. There's an outline uh, on the handout opposite uh, where the passage is. I think you'll find that helpful to have. Wouldn't you love to know the future? 
It's a, it's a traction, isn't it? Because if I knew the future, I'd sort of know how to live. If you knew that the um, uh, COVID strains are all going to mutate into strains that the Pfizer vaccine would no longer help with, you'd all get AstraZeneca, wouldn't you, if you had a chance? Uh, if you uh, knew that you are going to marry Tom, you wouldn't bother going out with Tony. Just a waste of time. Remember soon after I graduated from uni, I was working as an engineer. A couple of friends were coming to year 12 trying to decide what to do after. And I said to them, do ceramic engineering because ceramics is the future. They're going to make car engines out of it. Aeroplanes will all be, all be made out of ceramics. I'm so glad they didn't believe me because <laughs> it didn't turn out like that. What I thought the future would hold was wrong. The book of Revelation is about the future. The very first verse, let me just read it to you. It's probably not seared in your memory. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. What is in the future? What will and is necessarily, it's going to happen soon. Now, much of Revelation so far, if you've been with us, is about what's true now so you can know what is going to happen soon. That's like saying it's, year, it's week 11 of semester. That's what's true now, isn't it? And you know what's coming soon. Exams, because it's week 11. So Revelation has talked about the, the seals that are broken and the, 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 the sufferings that come on the world, the trumpets that are blown and more sufferings on the world. And it's describing the world as it is now. But when we get to Revelation 14, John is shown what is going to happen in the future. The future is shown to him for the world's population. The centre is verses 6 to 13, where the future of the world is announced. John sees three angels going through midair. I guess they've got wings or something. And each of them has an announcement to be made to all the peoples of the world. Every race, every nation, every tongue, you and me as well. The first angel brings what's called the eternal gospel, verse 6. Uh, to proclaim to those who live on the earth. He said in a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is not everything about the gospel, but it's what always is always true. It's not the full, but it's the foundation. Two big realities. There exists a God, a true God, who made everything. Therefore, he owns everything. It's all dependent on him. And secondly, his judgment is coming. That's the future. And what's the response? Fear God, honour God, worship God. To do anything different is wrong. It's, it's, it's like a, a teenager living in his parents' house who ignores his parents, who pretends they don't exist. It's just wrong. It's a fairly simple, clear message, isn't it? God is God. Treat him as God. It's what I call sledgehammer theology. Just basic foundations. <coughs> But angel two has a more explicit message. In verse, uh, verse eight, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. The immediate background is chapters 12 and 13, if you're with us then. The dragon, Satan, is attacking Christians to try and stretch and break their allegiance to Jesus. And his weapons are two beasts. Beast one, B1, totalitarian governments with their military power of oppression and persecution. Beast two is very different. The false prophet using deception. And B1 and B2 team up. Most people go along 
terrified of them, it's, it's expedient. Just to get ahead in the world requires a little bit of bowing and scraping. Well, that's what they'll do. But B1 is also called Babylon. And if you think about the story of the Bible, if you know much of it, you know Babylon first raises its head in, in Genesis chapter 11. As humanity comes together in this cooperative effort to build a tower that goes to heaven, to make a name for themselves. That is, by cooperative, multinational effort, we can do away with God. We can make life and be gods ourselves as we work together for it. And so it becomes a symbol of humanity united in rebellion against God and independence from God. Now, in the time that John is writing, Babylon is the code word for Rome. But it's really the code word for any totalitarian government like that. And the angel announces Babylon is fallen. It may look powerful, permanent, unassailable, but its end is nigh. Babylon will be demolished. Whether Babylon is in the form of ISIS or the regime of North Korea or the superpowers and would-be superpowers of the day or the multinationals of Apple and Google and Amazon or secular uh, militant uh, secularism, their end is nigh. They will come to an end soon. The third angel announces that God's fury is coming. Verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and its image, receives its mark on their forehead, forehead or hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They'll be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Those who sign up their allegiance to the beast receive his mark. Instead of being sealed and marked with, by, with the name of the lamb, their future is to drink the wine of God's fury poured full strength into the cup. Now, it's an image that doesn't make sense for us because we just buy bottles of wine off the shelf if you drink any wine, and it's all nicely packaged and manufactured, and it tastes at least, well, you you can drink it, can't you, usually? Unless you buy the expensive stuff that tastes good. But in those days, wine was often the worst thing you could drink. And this is full strength wine. Our wine's 15%. I don't know what it was back then. They didn't have the the means to measure it, but it was much stronger than our wine. And usually it had sediment in the bottom. And the cheap wine that most poor people could, could ever drink just tasted vile. And the picture that's painted is of somebody drinking a whole bottle of this wine. And it it leaves that that sediment in your mouth and the vile taste and you wake up in the morning just with the worst possible hangover. Your head is just pounding and the taste in your mouth is worse than the toilet that you just went to. That's what he's picturing. It's terrible. It's it's abhorrent. The end of verse 10 and verse 11 are even more explicit. Tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Volcanic activity, the searing heat, the pungent uh, gagging gases, that's what it will be like. And notice in verse 11, the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image. No relief, eternal restless agony, no coffee breaks, No comfortable positions you can get your body in to get rid of the pain. It goes on and on and on. This is the future. 
that John hears about. A dystopian, well, dystopian is an understatement, isn't it? This is horrifying and sobering. John's heard the future of the world. And then in verses 14 to 20, he sees the future of the world. I looked and before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. The future of the world is seen in two scenes of harvest. The first one is harvesting grain like wheat. The second is harvesting grapes. Uh, The wheat harvest first, the son of man, one like a son of man, that's clearly, I think, Jesus. Because the father has committed all judgment to the son. And we're told in verse 15, the time of harvest has come. The earth is now ripe. It it must be harvested. And the same thing is, is in verse 18. Another angel comes and says, take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes, because the grapes are ripe. It's a picture of a harvester, a farmer, waiting for the crop to get ripe. And if you know any farmers, that it's, it's an anxious time. If it's wheat, it's still a little bit green. You've got to wait, you've got to wait till it's finally dry and ready for harvest. The judgment won't come till the time is right. And then the harvest starts and the sickle sweeps. And with the grapes, the whole earth is harvested. It's almost like the earth is one big grapevine. It's got all these clusters of grapes and every single one of them is harvested with the sickle and poured into the winepress of God's fury. I don't know whether you've ever seen one of those old-fashioned winepresses. That's a big barrel of some sort. All the grapes are thrown in there and then people actually get in and trample on it. And they, it's, it's a bit, well, a bit sickening. I don't know what you make of it. They trample, trample, trample till the, the, all the juice is squeezed out of the grapes and it flows out of the bottom of the wine press. Here, God tramples the grapes in anger. And it's not grape juice that flows. It's not wine. It's blood. And it's blood that's a bridle to two metres deep and it runs for 300 kilometres. That's from here to Augusta. A river of blood that deep, deep enough to drown all of us. And it's blood, a river of blood flowing. It's stomach churning. It's disturbing. John is shown this graphic picture of judgment of God's wrath, of what we might call hell. There's no pulpit thumping in this. It's just images that have an impact. If you imagine it, it'll burn into your mind's eye. It'll stay with you like one of those nightmares you can't get out of your imagination. This is a future that raises very uncomfortable issues for every one of us. We're going to return in a minute to those uncomfortable issues. I don't want to ignore them. But we need to see the other side as well, which is in verses 1 to 5. Here is Jesus again in verse 1, but he's the lamb standing on Mount Zion, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, the new creation. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heavens like the roar of rushing waters, like a, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpers playing their harps. Jesus surrounded by 144,000 people. Now, we've met these before if you've read Revelation or you are with us last year. 144,000 in chapter 7 are the sealed, protected people of God. 
And we, th- we thought there about what's, what's the significance of 144,000, because it seems a very peculiar number, doesn't it? And it's not hard to work out the maths of it. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. So even you non-mathematicians can work that out, can't you? And the number 12 in the Bible normally springs to memory what? Well, there's the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the 12 apostles. It's a, it's a way of talking about the whole people of God. Now, in Revelation 7, they're also pictured as this unnumbered crowd from every tribe and, and language and nation, all gathered around the Lamb. But they're also 144,000. It's a symbolic number, I take it. And what it says is that every single one of them is counted, is precious, is there. Not one is missing. And that's the picture for us. And they have the lamb's name, name and the father's name. Instead of being marked with the beast logo, they're owned and protected by the lamb. And against all the pressures to give allegiance to the beast, to burn incense to Caesar as God, to bow to the state's demand, whether it be Muslim or atheist or the woke culture of today, they haven't committed spiritual adultery. They haven't worshipped non-gods. They've stood firm in their allegiance to Jesus. And suddenly music bursts out, loud, deafening music. He says it's like standing under a waterfall. You know how loud that is? Except this is musical. It's like an orchestra of harps. I don't know how you put the two together, but that's what he hears. And they sing a new song that angels can't join in because they've never been redeemed. And it bursts from their lips in full volume because they've been purchased from that, that predicament of the final judgment at great cost by the blood of the Lamb. As he says in, in verse 4, they are purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found on their mouths. They are blameless. They've, they haven't lied, not in the sense they've never told any lies, but when the sword was to their neck saying, bow to Caesar, acknowledge Caesar as Lord, They didn't lie. They didn't say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. That's the future for those who are loyal to Jesus. In verse 13, he tells us a little bit more. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. Life might be tough and painful and lonely and difficult now. And being loyal to Jesus will be like that. But then, relaxing in the warmth of the Lamb's presence, in the joy of final redemption and vindication. John sees the future. And there's only two ways the future is going to work out for people. One is all that you could ever dare hope for, even if life is difficult now. The other is all that you could ever dread, even if life is easier now. Before we think about the implications of that for you and me, I want to think a little bit more about this torment and fire and hell because we find that pretty distasteful. We find it even immoral. It, it, it feels like hate speech. I remember a friend saying to me, sending people to hell forever, where's the good in that? There's no restoration value. It's just vindictive pettiness. That's all it is. So we need to think a little bit more about this. So let me do it this way. We have an issue that historically has been there almost in every culture and every place of what to do about evil and people who do evil. 
in our culture, criminologists and philosophers and politicians normally think about three different ways, three possible responses to criminal behaviour, to evil. So if, if I... Louis, you got a phone? If I steal Louis's phone, okay? I grab his phone, steal it, take it away from him, won't give it back. What should happen to me? I've done something evil, haven't I? I've done something wrong. What should you do about it if you're responsible? Well, the first idea is deterrence. The way we should respond is in a way that deters people from doing such behaviour. So if you get me and lock me up, that deters me from stealing any more phones. And you hope that Will sees that, that if you steal a phone, you get locked up. So he'll be deterred from doing it as well. Uh, when we have uh, what's often called law and order campaigns in every election, that's usually what people have in mind. We want to treat people hard enough that it deters them and others from repeating the behaviour. The second way to respond is rehabilitation, to try and cure them of their criminal tendencies till they become good citizens. So what they're doing, it's really a sickness that has taken hold of them. And so in Western Australia at the moment, our department that deals with criminal people is called the Department of Corrective Services. You can see the philosophy, can't you? It's about correcting people, trying to make them better citizens. Deterrence and rehabilitation tend to look forward. What can we achieve? It's the results of what we do. Retribution, though, looks backwards. The third way we might respond is we say we punish them for their crime. They do the, the, they've got to do their time. We give them what they deserve. We give them justice. Now, th- those three are live options, aren't they? I want you just with the person next to you to talk about the, the advantages of each of them. See if you can come up with, I reckon this is probably the best way to do it. Just, just have a brief chat. Okay, I'll interrupt you there. I hope that's got you thinking. Now, I I could ask for lots of answers, but we're running out of time, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try and help you think your way through it a little bit. Now, it's firstly helpful to see that they're not mutually exclusive. If you do one, you might also achieve some of the others. But it still leaves the question, what really should we do at heart? Deterrence, rehabilitation seem to have the good of society in view, don't they? And maybe even the good of the criminal. They sound so much more civilised and humane than vengeful retribution. C.S. Lewis, who some of you might have heard of, 
1949, which seems a, a while ago, wrote an essay called The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. And he argued both logically and historically that if you take deterrence or rehabilitation as your main theory of what you're doing, it inevitably becomes oppressive and inhumane. Let me actually try that with you for a little bit. Think about deterrence for a minute. If the only principle you use to try and treat someone who's stolen a phone or killed someone is deterrence, what will you do? Well, you do anything that will deter, won't you? So if I've stolen Louis' phone, you've got to stop me doing it. So what are you going to do? If, I, if you think that I might still have any propensity in me to steal Will's phone, you've got to stop me, don't you? Cut my hands off. Send me to prison. If that doesn't stop me, you've got to do something more drastic. And you've got to do something that is an example to the population so they won't do it as well. That has to be drastic, doesn't it? Just for stealing a phone, you get to the point quite quickly of executing people if that is your only principle. And I hope something in you says that's unfair, just for stealing a phone. The convict ships that came to Australia came out of that situation. The upper classes in Britain didn't like the petty theft and, and crime of the lower classes, so they decided to transport them to Australia, to the butt end of the world, just for stealing a loaf of bread or a handkerchief. Totally unfair. It was just political expediency or retribution where we've got to treat them, treat them as sick people and we try and treat them till they're cured. So what should you do? I've stolen Louis' phone. What should you do? Well, you've somehow got to re-educate me so I'll no longer steal any phones. What does it take to do that? Well, <laughs> it takes an awful lot of manipulation and coercion to do that if you're really going to re-educate me. And it puts an awful lot of power into the hands of the people responsible for the re-education. Because whatever they think is the, the, the standard, whatever is their ideology that they're trying to educate me in, until they're convinced that they've achieved that, they won't let me go. They'll just keep re-educating me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has become famous for railing against that. Uh, you may have heard of him. He was a Russian. He was a... a, a, a captain in the Russian army in the Second World War um, under Stalin. After the war, he wrote a private letter to a friend, uh, basically saying, I think Stalin is doing some pretty terrible stuff, which he was. He was responsible for the death of about 600 million people. Sorry, 60 million people. Well, that letter was found by the wrong person. Solzhenitsyn was sentenced to a re-education camp in the gulags of the Soviet Union the freezing gulags. And he, under, un, he went uh, un, undertook more than eight years of re-education, of trying to get him to think differently. Uh, and he wrote, uh, well, he wrote some books out of it. Um, one was called uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan D, somebody or other, I can't say his whole name, and the Gulag Archipelago. And he exposes just how inhumane deter, uh, uh, rehabilitation inevitably becomes. Lewis argued that retribution is the only foundation way of thinking about it that actually treats people as humans, as humans made in the image of God who ought to be treated with some respect, whose decisions should be respected. If you did a criminal act, then you need to own that act. 
you need to be treated in accordance with the decisions that you made. You're not a sick victim. You're not just a tool to deter others, an example to be made. You're a real human. About 25 years after Lewis, uh, an Australian academic called Stuart um, Babbage, reviewed (laughs) what had happened to to Lewis's uh, argument in the academic world, but also what had actually happened in the the world of of, uh, how you treat criminals. And he wrote an essay where he... He got hold of a report that had been done into the Californian um, prison system. And in California, they no longer called them prisons. They called them adjustment centres. You can hear Big Brother, can't you? And this is what the report said. The persistent branding of lawbreakers as sick or abnormal is a mask to hide the mixture of hatred, fear and revulsion that white middle-class reformers feel for persons who don't share their middle-class ethic. The purpose of treatment is to force conformity to this ethic. From the convict's point of view, treatment is a humiliating game, the rules of which he must learn in order to placate his keepers and manipulate the parole board at his annual hearing. Not only has treatment failed miserably after decades of experiment, but even if it were scientifically feasible, its methods and objectives, manipulative routines for the purpose of remoulding the young, poor, black, brown deviants who fill the prisons to the satisfaction of their white, middle-class, middle-aged captors, are offensive and immoral. The remedy the authors suggest is that we should revert to the traditional practice of letting the punishment fit the crime. Sentences should have a definite duration. They should be uniformly applied and to strip away society's comfortable delusions about the purpose of imprisonment, they should be labelled punishment, not rehabilitation. I think they're right. And so does God, I take it. Now, retribution often does have other effects. It does deter. It can rehabilitate. But at heart, it's about treating the, the, the perpetrator of evil as if they made a real decision treating them with the respect they deserve by punishing them for what they've done. That's one issue. The second issue is that of eternal torment. Does anyone really deserve eternal punishment? Sure, we do life sentences, but our life sentences are only ever 18 years and and no longer in our courts. And there's a huge emotional pull here. The the thought that my brother, my oldest brother, might suffer in hell for eternity sends knives into my heart. But verse 11 seems pretty clear, doesn't it? The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Never be rest from their torment. It's not that they'll do their time and then they'll find some rest from pain. No, there's never any rest forever. So how do we make sense of that? Well, firstly, we do need to consider the severity of the crime. The Bible does recognise varying degrees of evil and culpability. Jesus talks about more tolerable for those of Tyre and Sidon than for those of uh, a couple of other villages uh, because they were more culpable. And the severity of God's punishment will be commensurate. Yet all of us at heart are guilty of high treason against God, pushing my creator, my owner, aside so I can take his place as my own God. The arrogance to think that I can decide for myself who I am and how I'll live. 
the self-centeredness to lasso anything to serve my self-interest and wreak havoc in the lives of others. And when God had the temerity to turn up and reclaim his world, we murdered him. Let the punishment fit the crime. Secondly, there's no indication that people in hell will repent. If you go to Revelation 22, it talks about those continuing to do what is evil. I have every expectation that the corrupt rebellion and arrogance that characterises our world will flourish when there's no restraint from God. Everyone curved in on themselves. I think eternal torment is actually what the Bible teaches, even though I'd prefer it not to be. But it's important to see how God talks about his judgment. In Isaiah 28, we have these words. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He'll rouse himself as he did in the Valley of Gibeon. That, that's times God brought judgment. To do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. That is, this sort of judgment goes against the grain of God. It's, it's not his natural stance to punish those he loves, to destroy those he created. His proper, his natural work is saving. His great project from the beginning of history is to take people to heaven, not hell, to rescue rebels like you and me. But he will do this alien work. The future includes a hell inhabited, I take it, by billions of those who refuse to fear God and trust Jesus. And so be warned. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. See, here's the application for you if you're a Christian. Patient endurance, tenacious loyalty to Jesus as the pressures mount around you to deny Christ, to transfer your loyalty to something or someone else that promises peace and prosperity now. Resist. And resist the temptation to take vengeance because vengeance is God's. I see the future. Verses 9 and 10 is one part of the future. Verse 13 is the other. 13, they will rest from their labour for their deeds will follow them. Verse 11, there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. Don't, please, if you're a Christian, trade verse 13 for verses 9 and 10. That is the worst choice you could make in your life, isn't it? It's like trading dinner at a Matilda Bay restaurant for a cup of strychnine. Just don't do it. I know it's uncool to be a Christian, but to trade Jesus for anything else, don't. If you're not a Christian, can I urge you to see the future and take action? You might say, Tim, are you trying to scare me or something? No, God is. God is trying to scare us, but he's doing it with tears my brother, my oldest brother I look up to, I've always wanted to be like him. He's defiant against Jesus. This is his future. And just to think about it, to contemplate that, just drives a, 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 a knife into my heart. Jesus wept over stubborn Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long? I, how many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. 
as Paul contemplates the future of his own Jewish nation that he belonged to, but saw that they'd rejected Jesus by and large. He says, I had great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. Yeah, I am trying to frighten you. Because I'm convinced there's something to be frightened of. This is the future. It's rest or no rest. It's heaven or hell. So please take action. The God who warns you is the God who sent his own son for you. He wouldn't do that unless your predicament was terrible. He wouldn't do it unless he loved you deeply. So please save yourself. We've seen the future. Please take it seriously. Amen.